It's not just a book of stories. It's a book. I like what Ron said this morning. And Ron, that really blessed me because I don't think you knew what I was going to preach on today, right? So he said, the Bible is not a book of stories. It's God's love letter to us, his bride, about Jesus, his bridegroom. And he didn't know I was going to play that video. So that really blessed me. When he started saying that, I was just smiling. I was like, wow, (laughs) that's a God thing. So we're in a series in the book of Mark. Last week, Greg taught on the beginning of Mark, or taught on the, uh, the transfiguration of Jesus. We're going to continue in Mark 9, talking about what comes next after Jesus is transfigured. But before we do, I want to go over a, a few things about the transfiguration experience that are key to understanding uh, what the story is all about and how it fits in to this Bible that's not just a collection of stories. First, let me ask you a question, though. Has anybody had what's called a mountaintop experience? You guys know what I'm talking about? Show of hands, who's had a mountaintop experience? So what I mean by that is where you know that you've heard from God. You know that you've experienced God's presence. And it was something that was almost otherworldly. And it can't be explained. Well, that's exactly what happened with Jesus and the disciples, right? Uh, James, Peter, and John went with Jesus up to the top of Mount Horeb. And they have this mountaintop experience where it cannot be explained. Jesus is transfigured before their very eyes into his true glory. It was a life-changing experience, certainly for those disciples, and it really was for Jesus as well. So I had a quote-unquote mountaintop experience back in uh, Venezuela in 1997. I think I told you guys about that a couple sermons ago, where uh, that summer of 97, I went to the jungles of Venezuela. Uh, Three degrees north of the equator is the best way to describe it. I think the town was called Koch, but you won't find it on a map anywhere. It was just a village on the side of the Padamo River, which is not even on a map. The Odinoco River, you might find, it's a tributary from that. And we, uh, we were a group of folks from the Air Force Academy working with Youth with a Mission, and we were led by a missionary named Todd Doctor. And uh, we did some, uh, some dental work. We brought a dentist with us. We certainly preached the gospel. We helped them move their village to higher ground because it had been flooded the year before. And it was definitely a mountaintop experience for the team and myself. And after the... The journey out, we spent the night in Caracas, Venezuela, in the capital, waiting for our flight the next morning to go back to the United States. And uh, Todd and the team took us to the roof of the hotel. Very memorable experience for me. And he started to debrief the trip. And one of the things he told us, and I've got my journal here that I brought to read it to you. So I wrote this back in June 19th of 1997. Had a deep trip debrief by Todd tonight. He mentioned to be aware of attacks by the devil. And then in that moment, he said, beware of the mundane, beware of the cynicism in church and the American lifestyle. Some interesting comments back from 1997. Why did he share that with us? Because it happens in the Bible. You see it with Moses on Mount Sinai. He gets the Ten Commandments. And then what happens? He goes down, and what are the Israelites doing? They're worshiping a golden calf. And he gets so upset that he throws them down and he cracks them. And then Elijah on Mount Carmel, he experiences victory. So he's in a a battle, so to speak, with the prophets of Baal. And there's a challenge of who is the true God. And Elijah prays and fire rains down from heaven. That's a mountaintop experience. God rains down fire from heaven and shows that he's the true God. And then shortly after that, this was really cool. It's almost like something out of the Avengers. He's running in the spirit. So he's supposed to meet Ahab, and Ahab had taken off on his chariot. And you can check this out in, in 2 Kings. 
he runs past the chariot because he's filled with the Spirit, like the flash. (laughs) And then, shortly after that, after that whole mountaintop experience, running in the Spirit, Queen Jezebel puts a hit out on him. And he's fleeing for his life. He had just shown that God is awesome, and now he's running scared. And so last week, Greg shared about the transfiguration, and Jesus had the mountaintop experience. A preview of things to come is what Greg shared. It was his mountaintop. But where Moses and Elijah failed, Jesus didn't. Both Moses and Elijah went to Mount Horeb to experience God, and that really blew me away what you said, that maybe God had like condensed time for all of them to meet at the same time on Mount Horeb. I don't know. That's extra biblical, but still a cool concept to think about. <laughs> uh, Jesus was true and better, just like we saw in the video. The true and better Moses, a representation of the fulfillment of the law. A true and better Elijah, a representation of the fulfillment of prophecy. So the transfiguration marks a big life shift, a shift in the book of Mark with what Jesus was going to do. So the first part of Mark answers the question, who is this man? Who is this guy? And the first part of Mark spends time answering that question. So this guy heals the sick. He heals the lame. He brings sight to the blind. He controls the wind and the waves, so he shows that he has power over nature. He casts demons out of people, so he shows that he has authority over demonic spirits. He shows and demonstrates that he is the Son of Man and the Son of God. And then after the transfiguration, the second part of Mark addresses this question. What did he come to do? What was his purpose? What was his mission? And both of these questions are initiated by God. So in the beginning of Mark, if you look at Mark uh, 1.11, he's baptized by John the Baptist, and that marks the beginning of his ministry. And what does God say? God says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And then Jesus launches into his ministry. And then what happens on the mountain with the transfiguration? God proclaims in Mark 9.7, this is my son. Listen to him. And that shift happens. And now from that point forward, Jesus is reiterating his purpose and focusing on the purpose in Mark 9.12. The Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected. So if you pay attention to what's going on during and after this transfiguration process on the mountain, you see that the two passages are foreshadowing Jesus' mission, a preview of things to come, like Greg said. Jesus comes down from God's presence. He comes down from the mountain, a representation of Jesus coming down from heaven. He comes to fulfill the law and the prophecies, doing what Moses and Elijah couldn't do, the people that he met with on the mountain. And then he frees the oppressed from sin, death, and bondage. And we'll get a little spoiler alert. He heals the boy from a demonic spirit. And the devil tries to strike one last blow, and the the boy is presumed dead. But Jesus takes him by the hand, lifts him up, raises him to new life, a foreshadowing of not only Jesus' death, but also to the life in Christ for every believer. Do you guys see the parallels there? It's the gospel message, just right there. Okay, all that was background, backstory. I use the word backstory, really. Intro. Wanted to lay the foundation as we move forward. Because there's a lot of meat in this passage, a lot of stuff here. So what I plan to do is I'm just going to read slowly through the the book of Mark, or the chapter here, Mark 9. And I want to... Like if we were in a coffee shop, I'm sitting here and we're just having a Bible study. That's kind of how I'm going to parse this out here. Dissect the, dissect the passage bit by bit. So I've entitled this message, You've Got to Have Faith. And we'll see why that is here in a minute. 
which also blessed me because Mitch uh, set up the music for this week and we hadn't really talked. And he said, hey, I think you were going to preach on faith or something like that. So I threw in the song about faith and that last song we sang was like perfect. So thanks for, for doing that. All right, so let's dive right in. So Mark 9, 14 through 29. We'll start with verses 14 and 15. So Mark 9, 14 through 15. If you got your Bibles, we can open there. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. So we'll stop there. So they came to the other disciples. So this is the day after. This is, and some scholars think that this is the morning after. So was, the transfiguration happened at night, and then the next morning they come down from the mountain, and this is the scene. And that part there where it says they were overwhelmed with wonder. In some translations it says they were amazed. And some scholars think that Jesus' face radiated. There was some residue from the glory that he had just experienced. Just like Moses when he came down from the mountain experienced it. He had to wear a veil over his face. And so there was some of that left over. And so the people ran to him. There's some other scholars that believe that Jesus' timing was just at the right time, that there was this conflict between the scribes and the, and the disciples because they weren't able to cast out this demon. And here comes Jesus to fix everything. So he just came from this mountain experience. He arrives on the scene, and it's one of chaos, just like Moses and Elijah had experienced, which brings me to my first point here. Satan's going to oppose us, especially after a mountaintop experience. But Jesus is overcome. He's overcome. And we can expect no less, right? Just like the team leader from my trip in Venezuela warned us, we're gonna, we should expect opposition. Do you remember what happened to Jesus right after his baptism? If you go back to Mark 1, 12, it talks, what, what happens immediately after that? Does anybody remember? What's that? Yeah. He went into the, exactly, thanks, Patty. He went into the desert for 40 days, and Satan tempted him. So he gets set out on his mission, and right away there's opposition. And then in this instance, with the transfiguration happening, things are being set in motion. Jesus is coming to fulfill his destiny, if you will, fulfill his mission, and Satan knows that. So he's starting to step up his hate game, so to speak. He's trying to oppose him. And we should expect no less in our lives. We, ex we experience the same opposition. The devil, the world, the flesh. I talked about that last time, uh, last time I preached. Can you throw that slide up there, Nate? So just to cover it again, the world, the flesh, and the devil are the three things that constantly oppose us. The world, represented by the scribes in this passage. In John 16, it says, take heart. I have overcome the world. So Jesus has already taken the care of that one. He's preparing for the work on the cross. And in Revelation 12, 10, 11, it expounds on that idea that Satan is defeated by Jesus' work on the cross. So the one thing that's left of those things that work in, in concert to try to oppose us between the world of flesh and the devil is our flesh. And that's the ongoing process that we need to work through as Christians, submitting ourselves to what God is calling us to do the sanctification process, that big word there. That's what that means. Just working through the issues of our carnal, sinful nature and submitting that to God. And Jesus has overcome the world. He's overcome the evil one. He's not going to overcome our flesh. That's our job. 
we have to submit to him. He's not going to do that outright. It works in tandem. Does that make sense? And if you want more on that, you can go back to the podcast and listen to that sermon a while back. <laughs> All right. The point is that Jesus overcomes the world and the, the evil one. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he's done that? Because that's where we're going with this. That's the difference between faith and unbelief. All right, back to the text. So Jesus asked the question here in verse 16. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. And then a man explains the situation. He says, a man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive, it, drive out the spirit, but they could not. To which Jesus responds in verse 19. O unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long should I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. So here's a question as I read through that. Why did the boy have a demonic spirit? What did that boy deserve? What did the boy do to deserve that? Nothing. What did the father do? What did the grandfather do? I don't know. It's not, it's not explicit in Scripture as to why that happened. We don't know exactly. But the thing that we can take out of that is that we know that the evil one attacks people who are vulnerable. Children, new believers, children in the faith. And we have to be ready for those attacks. And as more mature followers of Christ, we need to shepherd those who are new believers in that process. So I threw up this slide here to talk about some of the possible vulnerabilities that may have led to this. First one is a no-brainer there. So not clothed in Jesus. If you don't have Christ, you're subject to attack of the evil one, and your defenses are pretty weak. So it starts there. Willful, unrepentant sin or unresolved sin, that's one that as Christians we really need to watch out for. That's one that really, that I try to watch out for in my life a lot. What are the things that I do that are wrong that I've not asking, asked God for forgiveness for? Not wearing the armor of God, failure to pray for protection from temptation. Are you taking the time to pray through those things? The shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, walking in the gospel of peace. Failure to resist the devil. In James it says if we submit to God and resist the devil, he will flee. So if we're not doing that, if we're not submitting to God and if we're not resisting the devil, he's not obligated to leave. Participation in occultic activity, that's kind of what I think was happening here. Maybe uh, this boy had a history of this in his family, occultic practices or demonic lies or things of that sort that were passed on through bloodlines. We'll do a sermon on series on that some other time, I guess, right, Greg? Inner vows or oaths, that's a big one for us. So if you go around making a promise to yourself, I will never let that happen to me again. Or if you say something that, to the effect of, I'm not good enough. Do I have what it takes? No, I don't. I'm not beautiful. Those are oaths. Those are things that you are committing to unknowingly, perhaps. And when you do that, you're opening yourselves up to the enemy, to lies from the enemy that you start believing. The idea of identity, right? We've talked about that before. We'll get to that here in a minute. The last one was one that really pricked me this week, idolatry. So my wife gave me something to read this week about homeschooling, we homeschool. And uh, 
there was an article that I read about this guy who was talking about preventing from uh, making your children an idol. And that really struck home for me because in the passage or in the article that he wrote, he stated how the Israelites never really rejected God outright. They would still follow the traditions and they would still worship God, but they would hold on to other idols from other countries. And how true is that in our lives? What are the things that we are turning to for security and comfort that are not from God, that are apart from God? So that really pricked my heart. You know, what are those things that I'm holding on to for security and comfort that are not godly? And then finally, the last one, which we'll focus on a little more, is unbelief or lack of faith. If we're not believing that God is who he says he is, then we're going to be subject to the attack of the enemy because that's our protection. Which leads me to my second point here. Unbelief leads to frustration, but Jesus is patient and persistent. So by this point, the disciples had been with Jesus for a while. He was preparing them to do even greater things than himself, he says. He was preparing him to do the kingdom work that he was going to leave behind once he died, resurrected, and ascended to the Father. Earlier in Mark 6, Jesus sent out the 12 disciples to do exactly that, to heal the sick, to cast out demons. Ryan taught on that a couple months ago. And during that sending out, the disciples experienced success. They did it. They came back rejoicing that the demons were subject to them. So what happened in this instance? Why couldn't they do this one? What was the deal? You remember when Greg last week said, don't try to manufacture, reproduce God's move? You guys remember that? I think that's what was going on here with the disciples. They'd done it before, and they thought, I got this. I'm an expert. You know, in the military, it's kind of funny. You do something once, and you're considered an expert. You're the subject matter expert in the military, just because you did it once, right? (laughs) Military guys over here. And I think that's what was going on here. These guys thought they were the the expert because they had done it once. They thought they can do it in their own strength. Our fallen natures are like that, right? Prone to self-reliance. But in God's kingdom, we can't do things in our own strength. We have to rely on him. We're commanded to trust in God, not in formulas, not in experience that worked one time. God wants us to abide in him, to fellowship with him. And it's from that relationship, from that identity as his child, that we're able to move forward in obedience and in the authority of power of Christ. Triangle, it's coming up again. But the disciples in this instance are not connected to the Father, so they fail. And Jesus is frustrated in this moment by the disciples' inability to do it, to do the kingdom work. He says, O unbelieving generation, in verse 19. In some translations, it says, O faithless generation. We're not that different. The Holy Spirit sometimes is frustrated with us as we have a lack of faith. So let's talk about faith and what that means. Got to have faith. What does it mean to have faith? In Hebrews 11, verse 1, it talks about faith as being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That explanation is a little bit vague for me. A little hard to understand. So here's a simple definition. I got this from my old pastor back in Oklahoma City. His name's Sam Storms. As I was researching this, he did a sermon on this chapter several years ago. This is it. Believing in God's goodness and his greatness. Similar to what we sang about in that first song, or in the last song. Believing in God's goodness and his greatness. If we don't believe that he's good, then we're going to have unbelief. If we don't believe that he can do what he says he can do, then we're going to have unbelief. So let's dig a little deeper. 
Believing who God is. Confident trust that God is a good God who enjoys blessing his people. A God whose heart is for healing and deliverance. Holding true to what God said, to what Jesus said about his own father, that he is a good God who doesn't give his children serpents and snakes. Confident trust and belief that God is able to heal and deliver, that God is not limited or restrained by anything outside of himself, that he can do what he says he can do. Does that make sense? That makes a lot more sense to me. By faith, in Hebrews 11, as we continue on, the hall of faith. Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain. Abraham, when called to go to a place, obeyed and went. And then later on, his only son offered him up as a sacrifice in faith. Moses chose to be mistreated with his people rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. Jacob, Joseph, David, Samuel, the prophets, through faith, conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, escaped the edge of the sword, became powerful in battle, routed armies. Meanwhile, meanwhile, others suffered, being flogged, being chained, put in prison, stoned, sawed in two, put to death by the sword, mistreated. All by faith to do what? to foretell what we saw in the video, to foretell the true and better, Jesus. In verse 40 of chapter 11 there of Hebrews, it sums it up. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. They mean the the, uh, heroes of the faith. And that better was Jesus. Their lives demonstrate that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And everything that does not come from faith is sin, as it says in Romans 14, 23. When we lack faith, you, me, and the world, that's not good. And we lack faith when we believe that God is not good and God is not great. Okay, the triangle. So I think every time that I've taught, I've put this up here. Very profound. And so this is being recorded. So for those who can't see this, it's a triangle with the shape, a triangle shape with father and king at the top, identity and authority at the bottom corner, obedience and power in the left-hand corner, up, in, and out in each of the angles. And so what this means here is we connect to the father, our king in the up, and as we connect with him, He reveals himself to us, showing us that he's good, showing us that he's great, showing us that he's good like a father, showing us that he's great like a king. And then from that, we're able to receive our identity, children of God. We receive our identity from our father. We receive our authority from our king. And from that, we're able to go out and to obey. And we're able to go out in power. If that is not received, if we try to go from father and king, from the up just to the obedience and power and the out, that's where legalism comes into place. We start trying to do things in our own strength. And so we've already talked about in previous sermons about how Satan tries to attack our identity, and that's where he hits us. He tries to get us to believe lies about who we are in him, about who we are as children of God. But the other tactic that we've not talked about, and this is what I wanted to focus on here, is that role of father and king that God has. So when we have unbelief and we believe that God is not good, we're not believing that he's a good father. 
And when we believe that he can't do what he says he's going to do, we're calling into question his role as king. And so that's another area where, the, where Satan and the evil one tries to attack us. He attacks our identity, and he attacks who God is. We have to guard our faith by believing in God's goodness, believing that he is great. And if you're doubting, if there's somebody here who is saying, God isn't good, I've experienced that. God isn't great, I've experienced that. I would challenge you to challenge God. He's a big enough God that he can handle it. You remember that scene from Forrest Gump? Has everybody seen Forrest Gump? You remember that scene where he's in the storm and he's having it out, or uh, I think it's Lieutenant Dan, is having it out with, with God in the storm and he's saying, come on! I love that scene because God can handle that. God can handle our doubt. God can handle our questioning. That's okay. We have imperfect faith. We're going to talk about that here in a little bit. Jesus is patient with our unbelief. So he says here in verse 19, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? But fortunately, the Bible answers those questions. Can you throw the next one up, Nate? Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? In Hebrews 13.5, it says, he will never leave us nor forsake us. He says, how long shall I put up with you? In Romans 2.4, it says, his kindness leads us to repentance. He's patient. My peace I give with you, he says in John 14.7, when he leaves the disciples. Not like the world gives. He gives us peace. So even though he's frustrated and he's asking these questions, they're answered in the Bible. He does not leave us or forsake us. So let's get back to the text here. So verses 20 through 23, I love this interaction here. You got, you got to like picture this. This is like the scene in a movie. It's really cool. So they brought him, the boy. He said, bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus... It immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. So picture this. So Jesus shows up on the scene. He's like, what's going on? Why are you guys arguing? Father steps up, says, I brought my boy here to be healed. Your disciples couldn't do it. And Jesus exclaims, oh, unbelieving generation. All right, bring him over here. So they bring the boy to Jesus, and then all of a sudden he's on the floor writhing, rocking back and forth, foaming at the mouth. And what does Jesus do? This is the part that makes me laugh. So, how long has he been doing this? You know? And I can see this, the father's exasperation. He's like, really? What? Do something about this. And so... Jesus asked him, how long has he been like this? And I, I can picture this exasperated father saying, he's been like this since he was from childhood, often trying to kill him, throwing him into fire or water. But if you can do anything, please take pity on us and help us. And Jesus' response is awesome. He says, if you can, I can just picture saying, what? If I can? What are you talking about? This is what I do. <laughs> I mean, it's like asking LeBron James, right? Can you play basketball? <laughs> and I was thinking, it's like asking Greg, can you be a little more enthusiastic, Greg? 
This is what I do. (laughs) And so Jesus says, everything is possible for him who believes. It's as if Jesus is shocked and says, my ability and power is not at question here, sir. The issue is the lack of faith, both you and your disciples. Which brings me to the final point here. Almost done. Jesus responds with, everything is possible for him who believes. We've got that caveat there that comes at the end of this passage, but you have to pray in faith. The boy's father responds with one of the most transparent, sincerest responses in the Bible. And this is the reason why I picked this passage. So a few months ago, we sat down as a teaching team, divvied out the sections of Mark that we wanted to teach. And this is one of my favorite passages here for this verse. Where the man, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. That is an awesome prayer. That's one that we should be praying all the time. Just to guard against remembering who God is and how great he is. Imperfect faith. So who's the only person who's ever had perfect faith? Jesus. God, Jesus, of the Bible. That's always the answer to a question, right? <laughs> we joke about that at our house. Jesus is the only one who had perfect faith. Every other Christian has imperfect faith. And so that should be our prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. A beautiful, sincere cry from his heart. And one that we would do well to cry often. It's only Jesus' ability to fulfill his mission to die on the cross for our sins and be raised into new life that even allows us to have relationship with God. And so that's why it's critical that we abide in him in our imperfect faith. So, continuing on here, almost done. So Jesus commands the demon to leave. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter again. Never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. So again, a foreshadowing of what Jesus was going to do for humanity. The disciples asked him in private, why couldn't we drive it out? To which Jesus responds, this this kind only comes out by prayer. We've discussed already to some degree why the disciples couldn't get it done. A few more things to note here. Some questions to ask yourself. Why did Jesus talk directly to the demonic spirit? What was that all about? So I heard a sermon, listened to a sermon about this. And the person who gave this sermon said something that was very striking to me that I had not considered. He said that when you're dealing with demonic spirits, you need to address them. And if you look in scripture, that there's, there's no instance where you pray for people to be delivered in the sense that you're not praying for spirits to leave them. You address the spirit, and that's how they're delivered. That's how they're cast out. Something to think about. It's interesting. There's different degrees of demonic power here. So the disciples had success, but this one was a little different situation. So we really need to be careful about our relationship with Jesus and making sure that we're acting in his authority when we're dealing with degrees of power. And prayer is the key to that. It's the key to aligning our will, our posture, our faith with God's purpose. It's essential to our spiritual health. 
And it's the key to that statement, everything is possible for him who believes. What does that mean, everything is possible for him who believes? There's some pitfalls there. The devil doesn't care how he knocks us off course. He just wants to get us off course. He doesn't care if it's to the right or to the left. He just wants to get us off task, get our eyes off of Jesus. So with that in mind, let's take a look at what faith is not. Faith is not positive thinking. It's not a positive mental attitude. There's plenty of non-believers that accomplish things because of this. But these things fail the disciples. It's not just hoping everything works out. It's about abiding in Christ, following his example. There's a spectrum that I came up with to try to explain this concept a little better about focusing on God versus things that will take us off track. So if you look at the green in the middle there, God-centered, being focused on who God is for his glory, his honor, our joy, yes, but for his glory and his honor. And oftentimes imperfect, perfect, like we talked about, imperfect. The devil just wants to get us off of that. So there's the extreme of doubt, not believing who God is, not believing that he can say or that he can do what he says he can do. And then there's the other extreme of believing that God has power, but it becomes self-centered and we're focused on self. So let's take a look at these, two scripture, these three scriptures that are up here. So James 1, 6-8 says, But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. You see that? Doubt gets you off track. You don't believe who God is. You don't believe that he can do what he says he can do. And we're off the mark. And then the other extreme, when that's a little more aligned with, I think, the American church, is when we ask and do not receive, in James 4.3, it's because we ask with wrong motives that we may spend what we get on our pleasures. So you start focusing on name it, claim it, I deserve this, trying to control God, True faith looks like the prayer in John 14, 12 through 14. I tell you the truth, that anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. That's a strong statement there, because what was Jesus doing? Healing the sick, raising people to new life. And then he goes on to say even more. He will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name. Why? So you can control God and get the things that you want for your own selfish gain? No. So that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask anything in my name and I will do it. So we were talking about that verse uh, in a Bible study I was in this past week. Are we, the question that came up and it, it, it hit me as well as we were discussing this, are we doing the things that Jesus was doing when he was walking the earth? Are we healing people? Are we bringing people to new life? And are we doing even greater things than these? Jesus did some pretty amazing things, and he says that we will do even greater. But we have to be asking in his name, not in our name. I want to see that for my life. I know that Greg wants to see that for our church, and I do too. Is that what you want to see for our church family? Doing the things that Jesus did and then seeing even greater things? Because that's God's heart for us to see his kingdom come and see it come in power. Let's pray.
Lord, I'm humbled. Humbled that I get the opportunity to speak your word and speak your truth. And I pray that it start in me, Lord, that you would help my unbelief not to forget that you are good and that you are great. You are awesome. You are mighty in power. Lord, I pray for our family here that we would that we would truly come to understand what that means, that you are good and that you are great, that you have our best interest in mind. And our best interest is not always our self-interest. Our best interest is you, your glory, your honor. That does bring us joy. Help our unbelief, Lord. Help us to get focused on you and not on our own selfish desires. I pray that for myself, just like more than anybody here, Lord. Have your way, Lord. Have your way in our church that we may see even greater things than what your son Jesus did because we've identified with our role as children of God, because we've accepted that we have authority in you, because we've humbled our agendas to yours, Lord. Have your way.